Welcome. It's nice to be able to be with you today. We're going to have a word of prayer, um, and it's going to be a prayer of confession. Sometimes prayers of confession are difficult to pray, but also to listen to. Um, as we do that today, let's have repentant hearts, and I think we'll find we can find uh, forgiveness and cleansing and uh, restoration as we pray. Uh, also, uh, we'll learn more about gratitude, I think, uh, as we do that. So let's pray. Lord, you are a great God and Father. You are great in your works and your thoughts toward us and in your goodness and in your mercy. You are great in holiness, and therein lies our problem. We are not holy and can't enter your presence apart from the righteousness of Christ. His name is great and powerful. In it lies our salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, we confess that we don't honor you as we should. We fail to understand the awfulness of our sin and the severity of the darkness within ourselves. We are prideful and doubt that we deserve condemnation and deflect the truth that we fall short of the glory with which you created us. Forgive us for our delusions of goodness. We are marred, broken, selfish people who are incapable of defining moral boundaries. You alone distinguish what is right or wrong and evil. You have every right to be angry with us and to condemn us when we are rebellious, when we don't love you as we ought, when you do not love our neighbors as we ought, when we are filled with things you hate, bigotry, unseemly acts, unfaithfulness, unfairness, pride, dishonesty, hatred of others, lack of respect for life, and unloving and unforgiving ways. Our sins of omission and commission are much more offensive than we would want to believe, and they separate us from you. Whether noble or ignoble, righteous or unrighteous, we need restoration. Lord, give us insight into our flaws and inglorious ways so we can fully comprehend the enormity of your love and forgiveness. The amazing thing is that you hate our sins, but you don't hate us. Your love is so great that Christ, who knew no sin, took the wrath of our sins so that we might have righteousness in, in, in and through him. You don't want us to perish, but to live forever, and you lift us up and reinstate us to the greatest honor of being your image bearers. We can't do that on our own, but thank you for Jesus who gives us with your unending treasures of grace, love, mercy, and eternal forgiveness. No one cares for us like him. He takes the sin and darkness from us. Lord, today we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. May that prayer be more than a sentiment expressed. May it be a truth that we live, that the magnitude of your grace to us will be replicated by us. We cannot repay the forgiveness given us, the debt Jesus paid on the cross for us. But the simple truth is that if we are yours, we will have forgiving hearts like yours. In light of your great salvation, Lord, give us minds that seek you, repentant hearts that desire you, and lives that will be you to our neighbors. May we not live just as beneficiaries of the gospel, but live as conduits of the gospel a people overflowing with an abundance of those treasures of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you have given us. Come and heal us. We need your help to forgive as you have forgiven us. Give us a great faith of love and works, Lord, so we will live in peace with you and each other. We praise you for your great enduring faithfulness to us. And in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
you, Chris. And good morning, brothers and sisters. On a scale of 1 to 10, how loving are you? The parable that we're looking at this morning, like last week's parable of the unforgiving debtor found in Matthew 18, is a parable about forgiveness. More specifically, into the purpose of that last question, it draws a straight line between one's sense of being forgiven and one's expression of love. Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and let's walk through this text. We are in Luke, in chapter 7, and we're going to begin in the 36th verse. So, that is Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. We're going to come to know this Pharisee as a man named Simon. And as a Pharisee, he was part of a group known to be very religious, very devout. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were the self-appointed keepers of the orthodoxy. They were the enforcers of the rules, so to speak. And when Jesus hit the scene, they didn't really know what to make of him, and they didn't know what to do with him. A little later, they would certainly make some plans for Jesus. They would plot to take his life. But at this venture in his ministry, Jesus is still somewhat of an unknown. And so it seems that Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to his home probably for the purpose of sizing him up. And one then might wonder why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would subject himself to Simon the Pharisee's judgment or scrutiny. And the answer is that Jesus isn't afraid of anybody's scrutiny. He's not worried about anything that Simon might find out. He knows that he's going to pass every test. He's going to come through with flying colors. Jesus isn't afraid of anyone's scrutiny. He's not afraid of your scrutiny. If you're listening this morning, you haven't made up your mind about who Jesus is, and you've got him under the microscope, then good. Read the scripture. Find what it says about Jesus Christ. You will see that he was perfect. You will see that he was flawless indeed, the Son of God and the Lamb of God. Jesus went to Simon's house because he wasn't afraid of anything, much less Simon's judgment of him. Commentator William Taylor writes this also of Jesus going to Simon's home. It was part of his plan to accept hospitality whenever it was proffered to him in order that he might thereby reach all classes and conditions of men. Therefore, he did not decline the request of Simon, but went to his house just indeed as he came to earth itself to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee, And we look at verse 37, and we see, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, that's a heck of a way to be known, isn't it? And that's quite really an interesting introduction into the story. She's a sinner. Does that mean that she stood in contrast to all the rest of the people in that city who weren't sinners? Or would it mean that she was unlike everybody else at that party at Simon's house? that they were not sinners, and she was, that's not what it means at all. The ISV uh, captures it pretty well, I think. It says that she was a notorious sinner. In other words, she was a woman 
who had a reputation as one who would not abide the laws of God. One commentator I read said that she may have had questionable morals. And I can say to you with confidence, there's no question about it, she was immoral. She led an immoral life. She had no regard for God's laws at one point in her life. She was a reckless woman. Her indiscretions were known throughout the town. It's what she was known for and as. And we might surmise that she was at least an adulteress and probably more likely a prostitute. Someone who sold her body for money. Luke says simply that she was a sinner. And when this sinner learned that Jesus was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. You read that little phrase, reclining at table, you may wonder what it is. We don't recline at our tables here in 2020 in America. But it was a cultural thing back then. Folks would gather around a table and they would lie down. It was a low table and they would lay on cushions and they would dine. That gives kind of a new meaning to the idea of casual dining. We don't do it that way, but that's the way it was done back then. And when this woman heard that Jesus was at Simon's house, she decided that she was going to go and to see him. Again, how did she hear it? I think this town, the people talk a lot in this town apparently. Probably it's a lot like our town. She joined the party and she brought a gift for Jesus. We would think that she crashed the party. Our cultural norms would say that if you haven't been invited, you don't belong there. And without question, she wasn't on the guest list. But that again, it's a different culture. And people who weren't invited were nonetheless welcome. It wasn't unheard of, it wasn't forbidden to just join in a party. Most frequently prepared more food than they needed, and they allowed these people who came in after the meal, for instance, to eat what was left over. They could join a party in progress. They could listen in on the conversations. They could enjoy the fellowship. So it wasn't, it wasn't really as radical a thing that we think it is that she showed up. However, we should not underestimate the courage it took her to come to this party, for her to go to this house, because there's no doubt in her mind that for her to enter the home of a Pharisee, a devout and a religious man, she would invariably face judgment and she would clearly be looked down upon. So it took a great deal of courage for her to go to the house, but she did it nonetheless. This woman, we never do learn her name, takes her place. We're looking now at verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, what's she crying for? Many scholars agree that this woman at some time previous had had an encounter with Jesus. The details of that encounter we don't have. They're not in the text. But her behavior leads us to believe that she had known Jesus prior, even if it was just immediately prior, for she had brought him a gift. Maybe she met him in a face-to-face -face meeting, one-on-one, -on -one, where he had a chance to minister to her. Maybe she just took a place in the crowd. And she listened to Jesus preach, for that's what he came to do, preach repentance and truth 
and grace. And she had clearly a sense of this message of grace. And she also had a sense of who he was and a bit of a sense of what he could do. It's after she's standing behind him crying that things get a little crazy. At least they go beyond the boundaries of social convention in those days. The dear lady had cried so much standing there that Jesus' feet were wet with her tears. So she loosens her hair, which is something that was not really allowable or acceptable for a woman to do in public. And she begins to use her hair to dry his feet. And then in that process, she starts to kiss his feet, and then she starts to anoint them with the perfume that she had brought. That may not seem too radical to you these days. That may not even raise an eyebrow. But in those days, that was kind of over-the-top behavior. That was scandalous. That was kind of a risque um, public display of affection. And certainly, given this woman's reputation, it could have been misconstrued. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, you read in verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman it is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. See, Simon believes right now that he's getting the answer he was looking for. This Jesus couldn't conceivably be a prophet. For a true man of God would have discerned, would have had heightened sensibilities, would have understood that this woman touching him was a sinful woman. And, and a true man of God would have protected his own holiness and not allowed himself to be touched by her. He would have forbade her. He would have spurned her like everyone else was. That's what Simon is thinking in his head. Jesus can't possibly be a prophet. But then Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, to his credit, says, tell it, teacher. Say it. What do you want to say? And that's when we come to the parable, verses 41 and 42. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Like last week, we have a situation here where there's a debtor and a lender. Remember, parables are, uh, use earthly realities to teach heavenly lessons. Remember that a parable, in a parable, the common is laid beside. That's what that word means, to cast beside. The, the common is laid beside the spiritual for the purpose of teaching a truth. And what is common? Well, debt is common. Most of us have some experience with debt. Some of us have experience with debt that was so large that we couldn't possibly pay it back. And this is a story, again, of a generous lender, a lender who was willing not to extend the debt, not to restructure the debt, but to forgive the debt, to erase the debt, and indiscriminately. He does the same for the person who owes almost two years' worth of wages as he does for the one who owes less than two months' worth of wages. Both accounts are zeroed out because of the lender's generosity. And Jesus wants to know, Simon, who do you think is going to be the happiest about that? And Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? It's kind of a pregnant question. It's probably a whole sermon here, really, to be honest. Because there were parts of this woman that Simon could not see and did not see, yet he was quick to judge. And then there was the reality that, of course, he had seen her. How could he not see her? She had arrived at his home unannounced and uninvited, and she had proceeded to stand behind his honored guest and carry on and act in ways that were unbecoming of a woman in his eyes. Yes, Simon saw this woman. And what he saw was a sinner acting like he would expect a sinner to act. And indeed, in Simon's eyes, this woman is a villain. She's the bad one. Her only redeeming feature to him is that she helped him to answer the question he was trying to answer, and that is whether or not Jesus was a prophet. She helped him to understand that Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet. That's the only value he saw in her. But look at what Jesus says to Simon. Verses 44 and 46. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. See, Simon has been stingy with Jesus. He has not even afforded him the basic, customary treatment of a guest in first century Palestine. The truth is, Simon wasn't sure whether or not he wanted to honor Jesus. No washing of his dusty feet, no affectionate greeting, no oil for his head. Simon has not treated Jesus well at all. He's not honored his guests, but this woman, this sinful woman, she has done what is right. And Jesus not only lauds her for the good that she has done, but he uses a parable to explain why. This was not a histrionic display of empty emotion. It was a genuine display of gratitude. She had been given a gift by Jesus, and so she brought a gift to him. So Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You, you notice here that Jesus doesn't deny this woman has made her bad decisions in life. He fully acknowledges that she has violated the laws of God. There's no question about that. In fact, not only has she violated the laws of God, she is a repeat offender. Her sins, Jesus says, which are many. There are a lot of them. But they are not so many that they cannot be forgiven. This is what the Bible says about your sin. If you confess it to God, he will forgive you. If you agree with God about your sin, if you will say the same thing about your sin that God says about it, and you turn to him for forgiveness, 
the Bible promises that he will forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, one way for us to, to visualize sin is to, is to perceive it as a stain on the soul, like an indelible stain, a deep stain, that no matter how much scrubbing we do, no matter how much cleaning up we do. We just can't get rid of it. But the Bible also promises that God is not only able to remove that stain, that sin stain on our soul, he is not only able, he is willing to do it. He will remove that stain for you. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, promises, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like Jesus declares that this woman's sins are forgiven. He has authority to make that declaration because he is God. And further, the reason that he can be so definitive in this declaration is because he knows full well what he is about to do to make sure it's true. You see, Jesus is the moneylender. Jesus is the one who's willing to cancel the debts that are owed to him. Jesus is the one who will cancel those debts, whether great or small, and he will do so by absorbing the cost himself. He came from heaven to live a sinless life. And in the stead of sinners, to pay our debt of death on the cross. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus came to say, I'll pay it. I will pay it in our place, as our substitute, he would be killed and he would pay the punishment for mankind's sin. And so he could say to this sinful woman, and he can say to any of us, he can say to you with authority, your sins are forgiven. Your debt to God is paid in full. Are you tired of living under the load of your sin? Are you tired of carrying around all this guilt from all these regrets, bad choices that you have made and things that have been done in your life? If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be cleansed, simply ask God to forgive you, and he will. This is what has happened for this woman. And, and it, it was the enormity of the weight lifted off her shoulders by Jesus that led to this extravagant outpouring of love. She had been forgiven much, and she knew that she had been forgiven much, and so she loved much. How about you, Christian? Do you love much, or do you love little? On a scale of 1 to 10. How loving are you? Do you resemble the woman who knows the vast extent of her forgiveness, the depth of her sin that Christ reached into to pull her out of and so responds to that with great gratitude? Are you like her? Or are you more like Simon? with little to no sense of God's grace in your life. Self-confident, self-sufficient, maybe even self-righteous, looking on others in judgment, 
and not being very loving at all. In fact, being very stingy with how you hand out love. Well, prayerfully, it's the former. Prayerfully, we, especially as Christians, are like the woman. But that's not always the case. If it happens to be the latter, if you find yourself lacking in the love for God and mercy extended to others category, there is something that you can do. Author Gary Enrig writes this, if the spring doesn't bubble, the problem may lie at its source. If we're truly forgiven, he says, but only mildly grateful, that is a sure sign that we have somehow polluted the bubbling spring of the Spirit. Only a return to the cross will free us to see again the enormity of our sin and the cost of our forgiveness. A key to loving well, Christian, is keeping near to the cross. It's living in the awareness of the gospel every day. The gospel is not just like a one-and-done transaction. That's sometimes how we treat it. And that's actually kind of the danger in that preaching that says that all you have to do is say these few words and you're going to be saved and you're going to be rescued from hell and you're going to go to heaven. Many people say those words and they have no, no idea what they're talking about. They have no faith. They're not putting faith in Jesus. Salvation is by faith. Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. And we must live with that gospel awareness, that good news all the time. We must cultivate an awareness that it isn't just a one-time thing. It isn't one interaction that we have with God, but it is daily walking with him that his grace is at work in our lives right now, that we stumble and we fall, but we ask forgiveness, and he picks us back up again over and over again. That awareness is what keeps us humble. That awareness that we are not perfect, that we are being transformed, that God is lovingly and patiently persevering with us, keeps us filled with the gratitude and the love that we need if we're ever going to worship God properly and if we're ever going to be gracious with others. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he instructed the Ephesians at the end of chapter 4 there, when he tells them to be kind and to be tender-hearted and to be forgiving, he qualifies it. Do all those things, he said, as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you want to love much, and I pray that you do, because this is, in the scripture, this is what Jesus said is the way that people will know we belong to him that we are his disciples by our love. It's a Christian distinctive. It should be. If you want to love much, then stay in touch with how God in Christ has loved and is loving you. The hymn writer has it right when he says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Focus more on what's been done for you than what's been done to you. Then your heart will be filled with gratitude. Then the power and the will you need to love will come. I want to encourage you this morning to follow the link in your order of worship. It may not be your practice, and maybe you are not don't have the computer capability to do that, but if you can, we've posted a link to a nice rendition of uh, an old song called Jesus Paid It All. And I think if you go there, you're going to be blessed to, to worship 
with that song. I think coming out of that, it's going to be kind of hard for you to be proud, and it's going to be more difficult for you, as Chris had prayed, to hold a grudge, but to be, in fact, more infatuated with the love of Christ, the way this woman was, so that she would pour herself out at his feet. And that's how you and I, every day, will continue to pour ourselves out at Jesus' feet. We're going to continue uh, to explore this idea of forgiveness. It's a pretty, pretty deep pool that we're swimming in now. Uh, but we got in, so we might as well stay for a while. Next week, Lord willing, and you know I've already, uh, you know, plans during a pandemic don't always work out. But next week, this is the plan. We're going to talk about seven action steps. Uh, seven A's. So those of you who like alliteration are going to be right in heaven next, next week. Seven A's. Of forgiveness. A few housekeeping items before we wrap up completely. I would like to encourage you, if you have not already done so, send your quarantine worship photo in. Take a picture of yourself uh, worshiping wherever it is that you're having to worship online, in your living room, uh, outside with whoever you're worshiping with, a cup of coffee, it doesn't matter, just take a picture. We want to preserve these moments. I know some of you want to forget them. We'll never forget them. We need to preserve them because we are going to come through this with a testimony of God's greatness. We're going to come through this seeing that our God redeems everything for his glory. So we want pictures of that. Please send them in. You can send them to me, pastor at ubcellsworth.org. You can send them to the office, ubc at ubcellsworth.org. Second, I want to tell you, if you haven't figured it out by now, if you have a sermon card, throw it away. It is not useful for anything anymore. We are in May. We have made some changes to the sermon card already. We are staying in the parables for a little while, but you can see we're going to deviate just a little bit from time to time. In truth, during this month, there were supposed to be four guest speakers. There are four men in our ministry cohort that have been working on their own sermons from the parables, and they were prepared to bring them to you. But since you're not here, and that's not your fault. That's no one's fault. I don't think I'm going to put them in front of this camera. So obviously things have changed. Toss the sermon card, and we'll, just, we'll get along just fine without it. Thirdly, I want you to know that we are making preparations for coming back to worship. Eric Geiger sent out some great information this past week. He encourages churches to focus on preparation versus prediction. People kind of always want to know, when are we going to do this? What's going to be the date? And the reality is we can't tell you. Uh, and that's because the information shifts with regularity and the criteria is shifting. So we're always looking at moving goalposts here. All we can do is prepare to come together. And that's what we're doing. The leaders are doing that even now. And we will be communicating with you when we know things. And we will probably be soliciting your feedback and input as we prepare to move ahead. Um, I think that's about it, except there's one more thing just to keep in mind, if you would. And that is, we have done a nice job as a society. Most of us, I think, have been pretty obedient. And we've done our best to flatten the curve. So congratulations. Uh, the problem, though, that's going to emerge, and in some ways maybe you're even feeling it in your own home, is that other curves are coming. Other waves are, are forming as a result of the quarantine. And we can expect and have seen, in fact, 
a rise in things like divorce and abuse and addiction and suicide. So there are other curves coming that need to be flattened. And I just want to say as your pastor that if, if these things apply to you, if what I'm talking to you, you say, mm, yeah, this is the place I'm at, and I don't even have the crowd with me anymore to talk to, and I don't have anybody to, to get me through it. I, I want to say, let's not let that wave get too big, okay? Let's understand that it's coming. It's going to come through society, and to a degree, it's going to come through the church. And as this church, we are in this together. We really are. So I want to encourage you through the week that you behave, that you be well, but most importantly, that if you have any need, beloved, please reach out and let us know how we can help. Lord bless you.